Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings fellow time travellers. Great to have you with me once again as we continue our journey together through history, uh, the history of the world. This is my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast series, that's the work of Paul and myself, and to get access to exclusive content, sign up to my patreon.com site. Uh, it's simple. Just go to patreon.com, follow the instructions, part with a bit of cash on a monthly or an annual basis, and you can content yourself in the knowledge that you'll be contributing to the supporting of all that makes the podcast series possible, and I'll hope to see you there. We have a competition on the go at the moment based on this series. It has limited edition t-shirts as prizes, but you only have until the 18th of August to get involved, so you'll have to be quick. Right, it's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine and set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The ghost of a half-plucked chicken is haunting a city square. It's ghoulish flapping, helping science take another step forward. Key to understanding the natural world and the wider cosmos are careful observation and analysis. Also rigorous testing of new ideas and insights. Out of this intellectual cauldron of thought and process came the scientific method. Hi Neil. Last week we travelled with you to the City of London in Great Britain to hear the finishing touches being put to the most iconic version of the world's best-selling book. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Uh, Well, we're going from a holy book to a half-plucked frozen chicken. It's 1626 and we're travelling to meet one of the world's great thinkers. It's midwinter in the village of Highgate in London and Francis Bacon is stepping out of his horse-drawn carriage into a fearfully cold April day. I'm back in Stirling. I've been away for a week with the family. We were on Crete in the Med and uh, surrounded by history and archaeology. But anyway, that's why I'm possibly a slightly different colour. Do not adjust your screens. We got toasted in 30 degrees of Greek sunshine. It was lovely. Um, But where are we? Where are we in history? Where are we in the love letter to the world. Well, I have to acknowledge, quite appropriately, really, because my spirits were raised by being away, and the one today, I'd have to acknowledge that there's, a, there's an element of light relief about this one. <laughs> there's no getting away from it. 
certainly on the face of it, it tends towards the bizarre. But there is, there is, of course, also a serious underpinning. And it's undoubtedly we're going to be dealing with a moment of note in the story of the world. Uh, but if I, if I may raise the spectre of the bizarre and say it's the tale of an eminent polymath, a frozen chicken and the birth of the scientific method. There's, uh, there's three uh, subjects you don't expect to hear bundled into the same sentence, but there you go. So, where are we? We're in London, actually, to all intents and purposes, but London when it looked slightly differently, a few centuries ago. You might say that we're in Pond Square, or we're in the territory that would become Pond Square in London's Highgate, home to the famous cemetery and all of that. And Pond Square, which is a, a fairly elegant, an elegant square of, of houses, it's said to be haunted. Haunted, that's familiar enough in London. But in the case of Pond Square, it's said to be haunted by the ghost of a half-plucked chicken. I kid you not. Uh, but by now we're in 2023, and it has been a while since anyone has reported seeing the aforementioned plucked chicken. Uh, but uh, during World War II, let's say, uh, and then in the 1960s, there were reported sightings. And as recently as the 1970s, a courting couple uh, claimed that their amorous embrace among the, the stately plane trees that encircle the square, uh, that their, their uh, coupling was interrupted when uh, something fell from the sky and landed right beside them. And when they looked, it was a half-plucked chicken, which, according to their testimony, ran in circles, squawking, and then vanished into thin air. Take from that whatever you will. Yeah, so I mean, let's uh, let's let's leave all that uh, wh- where it lies and backtrack from the 1970s by uh, the aforementioned few centuries. The polymath, the man I mentioned at the top, and it is a man. The man in question is Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, so from chicken to bacon, born in London in 1561, he was a, a man who steadily convinced himself and others that the future of the human species could and would be bettered via, well, natural philosophy, as he would have known it, science to us. Francis Bacon was quite something. When I say polymath, he was a courtier, which is to say that he was a useful operator around the in royal circles. He was a politician, um, a parliamentarian, he was a lawyer, a jurist. Uh, he was an essayist of note, and a you know a natural f- philosopher. For a while, he was the Lord Chancellor of England. Wow! So he was big job. He, yeah, it was a it was a big deal. He was a big deal, and famously, well, there are those who claim to this day that it was Francis Bacon who wrote the works of William Shakespeare. There are those who claim that William Shakespeare is just a kind of a front, a, a, an avatar, a, an, an alter ego, uh, and that it was really Francis Bacon who, who turned out the work. And I, I mean, it's fascinating enough in itself that his dates are right. You know, he was born in 1561, so that's three years before Shakespeare, and he lived until 1626. So he lived long enough to have seen the publication of the first folio. He also, without a doubt, he had the intellectual reach the intellectual nous 
to be an authoritative playwright. And he had the ambition, clearly. But it kind of falls apart, really. You know, you would say, well, why would you not out yourself as a writer of the skill and popularity of, of William Shakespeare? Well, the, the answer to that is that he, he worried that, as a serious politician and jurist and all of the rest of it, that he might have been sort of criticised if he if he emerged as a public playwright because anything to do with showbiz in the you know in the sixteenth early seventeenth centuries it was it was kind of downright disreputable really, and he adhered to a, a motto which is bene vixit qui bene latuit which which means something along the lines of he who has gone unnoticed has lived well. So there's this kind of air of mystery about him that he might have, you know, he might have had this um, hidden side to him. Anyway, when you actually look, he, he did actually publish some works of his own, and they're rubbish. <laughs> so it it doesn't seem likely that he actually had the literary uh, muscle to to turn out Hamlet and the rest, based on the, on what he put out under his own name uh, in a very limited way quite early on. But anyway, moving on. He also, and always, he championed the need for what he called inductive reasoning. It's the underpinning of the scientific method. It's about experimentation and research and accumulating data. You know, the idea being that the more you research, the more you look into a, a question, then the more legitimate your hypothesis is likely to be. So... I should backtrack a little bit again. By 1618, right, by 1618 he was Lord Chancellor, but he fell into debt in the years that followed. And when he fell into debt, he fell from grace. And at that point, he left behind the world of politics and concentrated on on what may have been his first love, which was natural philosophy, which is what we would understand as, as science. And in essence... The way in which he is credited with helping to change the world. He said that it wasn't enough just to think yourself to an explanation of a phenomenon. You couldn't just look at something strange like the movements of the planets or whatever else and just think your way to an answer. There had to be more to it than that. The Greek philosophers, Socrates and the rest, they had believed that you could answer any question just by thinking about it. You know, just with my mind. And of that, Bacon said that they assuredly have that which is characteristic of boys. They are prompt to prattle, but cannot generate, for their wisdom abounds in words, but is barren of works. Right? Barren of works. So by works, he meant that you had to come up with an idea to explain something you were looking at. So come up with a hypothesis and then design experiments to test your own hypothesis. And as long as your explanation stood up in the face of the challenge of the experiment, then your hypothesis could remain credible. But the minute you or anyone else came up with an experiment that uh, refuted your hypothesis, then you had to start again. So that's the scientific method, which is what we seem to have forgotten in the present day. There's not enough actual scientific endeavour going on and too much pontificating about the science as though all of the meaningful questions have already been answered. So, anyway, come, let's say, April 1626, that would be the moment when the world changed. 
He was travelling in a carriage with an individual identified as Dr Winterbourne and it was bitterly cold for April anyway and there was snow on the ground and it got him thinking and he, he opined to Dr Winterbourne that it should be possible to preserve fresh meat by freezing it. Now, this was an, this was an unknown concept at the time but Bacon decided that you could preserve food by dropping it below the freezing point. The carriage was passing through the village of Highgate. It was a village at that point in history. And Bacon got so excited about his idea that he had the carriage driver stop and he leapt out and he, he, he dashed across to a house, knocked on the door and a woman answered. And uh, he, well, long story short, he bought a chicken from her and he had her pluck it and clean it, you know, uh, gut it. He paid for the, the carcass and he, you know, he, Gave, gave her his thanks and he, he crossed to open ground opposite her house which would in due course be Pond Square but at that point it was just open you know just an open field and there he, he took the, the chicken carcass and he packed the inside of it the cavity with snow and then he put it in a bag and he packed the bag with more snow and then he dug a hole and buried the whole thing so this was his experiment so his intention was to leave it there and then come back after a period of time and see how it had fared, having been frozen. He jumps back in the carriage, but he, he had been, the process of doing it, the process of being outside in the snow, in the freezing temperatures, you know, getting wet from handling it all, he became, well, he, he, he got a nasty chill and his condition in the back of the carriage seemed to deteriorate. And Dr Winterbourne, because he was a doctor, was alarmed by the fevered state that Francis Bacon seemed to have descended into, and he had the carriage divert to the home of a nearby mutual friend who was the Earl of Arundel. The Earl of Arundel was not at home, but because they were known faces, they were allowed onto the premises, and uh, Winterbourne put Francis Bacon to bed. The bed was first warmed with a bedpan, you know those things that you fill a, a, a metal ashet with hot coals and then you put, and it gets pushed to the bottom of the bed and it you know, raises the temperature. But the problem was that nobody had slept in the bed for you know, a year and the sheets were damp. So unknowingly he was put into the worst possible conditions. And you know, his temperature, his feverishness increased. The chances are what he ended up with was pneumonia. His condition deteriorated and within a few days he was dead. But not before he'd written a letter to his absentee host, because that's how people operated in those days. He said to Earl Arundel, I was desirous to try an experiment or two touching the conservation and induration of bodies. It succeeded excellently well. So he managed to pass on the idea that his experiment with the chicken... This is the half-plucked chicken that apparently haunts Pond Square to this day. As I say, there's a touch of the bizarre about this story. So did he have a chance to get someone to go back and dig it up? No, he died. We know about the experiment because he, he wrote the details of it in this letter to Earl, the Earl of Arundel, who was his absentee host. But no, time moved on and... You know, nobody went back to get the chicken. Maybe that's why Pond Square is haunted by it. The unquiet, the unhappy spirit of the chicken. 
So Francis Bacon has gone down for that and for other works as the father, the father of the scientific method. And you might say it's justified because what greater demonstration of the value of experiment is there than that made by someone who gave his life to the effort, which is what happened with Francis Bacon. Little Coda, in 1627, the following year, after he was dead, a book that he had been working on was published. It was called New Atlantis. It was a novel, and it was about a, a, a utopian island uh, where the, the population uh, considered the pursuit of knowledge to be the highest calling. And on the island, there was a college, which was the, the, a university, the, kind of this, this, the hub of the whole operation, where people practiced the scientific method. There's a quote here in the college. They were dedicated to the works and creatures of God. The end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes and the secret motion of things and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire to the effecting of all things possible. You know, so this was the, the idea with which he was consumed in the months and years before his death. Francis Bacon is a touchstone. He's a, he's a milestone on the road to scientific understanding. And, and because of this immortal contribution to the pursuit of knowledge and the, and the scientific method, uh, he's an icon. He is an icon of science. He underlined this point that experiment is the key, that you come up with a bright idea and then challenge your own idea with experiment. And your objective at all times is to prove yourself wrong, not to prove yourself right, your endeavour at all times is to try and prove yourself wrong. And for as long as you can't prove yourself wrong, then your hypothesis is allowed to stand. It's noble. He wasn't alone. You know, I mean, around that time, there are other people who are doing the same thing. We've already touched on Johannes Kepler in terms of his study of the, the movement of the planets. Also Tycho Brahe, without whom Johannes Kepler couldn't have done his work. They were followed by uh, Galileo Galilei, who else? The English physician uh, William Harvey at that time, who noted and described the circulation of blood around the body for the first time. Knowledge that we take for granted, but that was demonstrated by experiment. At that time, at that, that cusp between the, the late 1500s and in, into the early 1600s, as, t as time wore on from that point, there were telescopes became available to people and microscopes from the macro to the micro, the means, the tools for observation were there. And Francis Bacon stands at a point on the road where humankind was taking its first steps into the modern world. It's fascinating that the scientific method, the theory and practice he helped develop all those years ago is still so valid today. It's, it's better than valid at the moment, Paul, because... You know, when we went through the, the last three years, you know, where we went through the, the declarative statements that were made about the pandemic and the declarative statements that were made about um, the injectables that people were all but obliged to take and certainly encouraged to take and, and, and anyone asking questions at that point, which is, which is the scientific method, was shouted down. The, the establishment and a group of self-proclaimed good scientists tried to persuade us that there were no questions to be asked, that there was no challenge to be made concerning their hypothesis in relation to the pandemic. 
And that's antithesis. That's the antithesis of the scientific method as Francis Bacon began to sketch out centuries ago. We were told that the science was settled. We were told that there was consensus among scientists. And out of that consensus came orthodoxy and dogma, which is really the territory of cults and religions, where there's something that you're just told to recite. This is the word. Go forth and preach it. That's not the scientific method. And so there's never really been a a more timely moment for considering and remembering and reminding ourselves and reminding you know the generations coming up kids that science is a conversation without an end it's an unfolding story the last page of which will never be written and never be read and anyone anyone at any moment is entitled if not obliged to contemplate challenging scientific orthodoxy because we never know from where or from whom the next best idea will come. And that those best ideas are arrived at, and they're temporary, they're only ever temporary, but they're arrived at via the scientific method. The bubonic plague hits Europe Fear and panic spread. House doors in London are sealed and daubed with the prayer, Lord have mercy. The University of Cambridge closes its doors and Isaac Newton flees to Lincolnshire. For him, it becomes a time of great thinking and writing, of light and refraction, of objects in flight, of laws of motion. An orchard, an apple, mathematics, calculus, gravity and a book, the greatest work of science ever written. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I would love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, my YouTube channel simply called the Neil Oliver Channel, And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and have them write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon, Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? 
we wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.